should be a teacher ready to receive you downstairs. And uh, if you're third to seventh grade and you're still with us, there's a three-ring binder in the back. Our, our treasure seeker binder is right underneath the, the clock. And you can take a few notes. God, these wonderful and honestly strange, sometimes bizarre words, the book of Revelation chapters 4 and 5, Lord, I pray that you would come and truly this morning, of of any morning, grant us the gift of illumination. Um, Lord, if if we leave here without any sense of mystery, uh, then uh, something's gone wrong, and yet at the same point, Lord, you, you want to shed light on the scriptures this morning. You, you intend to be understood, and you are good and adequate at communicating to us who you are. And so the season of all seasons now, would you come, Holy Spirit, and shine a floodlight not only on this text, but on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to whom this text uh, ultimately points and grant that we would understand uh, at a greater depth than maybe we ever had before uh, the wonder of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ this Advent season. Lord Jesus, it is in your name, your strong, powerful name that we pray. Amen. What is the gospel? Can you summarize the message, the central method message of our faith in just a few minutes? Or what if you only had a handful of seconds, a few seconds, 30 seconds? Could you do it? The degree that you can or cannot is a question of clarity, clarity on the content of the most treasured message and treasured of truths, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Um, maybe like in your house, uh, in, in our, like in our house, your house, this past weekend, Christmas music began. How many began to hear songs that you've heard a million times, right? <laughs> songs that you know the cadences of, the movements of. Do you know the gospel message like that, like those old songs? Do you know it well enough to preach it to yourself? When you're, when you're in need of it, when you're in a place of suffering or temptation or sin? Are, are you familiar enough with the, with the contours of this, this dispatch so that you can transmit it with precision uh, in the moment of battle with someone in desperately need of it? Um, one way that Christians have sought to train themselves in gospel fluency over the years is by the use of evangelistic tracts. Now, they're not all created equal, but the best gospel tracts these days are careful to lay out the essential storyline of the Bible and then give you a few handles on key biblical truths uh, that are essential to a person coming into right relationship with their creator. Uh, A a well-written tract uh, patiently 
understood and carefully internalized can serve as a spectacular encouragement in your own walk with Christ, in your confidence, in your grasp of the gospel, uh, but also as an excellent training tool as you seek to unfold the good news of Jesus Christ to those that you love that are far from him. This Advent season as a church, we're going to study one of the great gospel tracts of the Bible. Uh, It's a summary not only of the Bible's storyline, but of the key doctrinal truths that uh, compose the most indispensable memo in the history of the world. Uh, The author of this tract is the evangelist John, the Apostle John. And of course, John is is a master of gospel brevity isn't he? Considered his most famous sentence, possibly the most famous sentence in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That single verse is a tightly packed theology textbook, and it trumpets the essential truths about God and man and Christ and response. Think about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God, man, Christ response. Those are the touchstone categories of the gospel. The gospel is a message from God for man about Christ and after a response. And John 3.16 is one way to summarize it. But it's not the only way. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, the Apostle John is given a vision. And that vision is essentially a gospel tract. Now, the goal of Advent season, in the words of Charles Wesley, is that every heart would prepare him room, right? That's what we're about in the Advent season. We want to be a people prepared to celebrate the birth of our Savior as a worshiping community. We also want to be a people prepared and equipped to move into the holiday season to speak a word, a fresh word, about the old, old story of Jesus and his love to those whom we have contact with this Christmas, who are uh, on the other side of that good news. So we want to get the gospel right for the purposes of worship, but we want to get the gospel out for the purposes of mission and evangelism. And the gospel, according to Revelation chapters 4 and 5, can equip us with both. Now, this works really well because uh, Advent season is comprised of four Sundays, and each successive Sundays will move a step deeper into this message of the gospel, God, man, Christ, response. This week, we're going to begin where the gospel originates, the truth that first must be understood if we are to celebrate and demonstrate and communicate the good news of Jesus Christ rightly. The first truth is the truth about God. And here's the truth. God is worthy of our worship. But until we see him as he is, we will never savor him as he deserves. God is worthy of our worship. But until we can see him as he is, we will never, ever savor him. As he deserves. So, this Advent season, may God open the eyes of our hearts to see three things. And here's the first of those things. Number one, that God is a holy king. God is a holy 
king. Look with me once again at Revelation chapter 4, just the first two verses. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Okay, let's get our bearings a little bit. After six months in Ephesians, we need some orientation here. Revelation is, and revelation, not revelations, sometimes we're given to say it with an S, it's revelation. Revelation is, at its most basic level, a, a vision. Our English word revelation has built within it, of course, the idea of a revealing. Uh, called an apocalypse in John's day, this type of literature literally means to uncover or to unveil something. And toward the end of the first century, this apostle, John, was exiled to the Greek island of Patmos for his proclamation of the gospel. And while there, he had a vision. And it's a vision that God gave through his son, and he fully intended that John would write it down and share it with us so that we, in two, could see what John saw in fact, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says exactly as much. Revelation 1, 1 reads, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then Jesus says to John in Revelation 1, 19, Write therefore the things that you've seen. Write therefore the things that you have seen. And here we see in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, uh, repeated references to sight don't we? John says, after this I looked, and behold, Jesus says to John, I will show you. And then John says again, behold. Why so much stress laid on, on visuals, on optics? Um, pastor and theologian James Hamilton answers this question beginning with a few questions of his own. Hamilton writes, what will it take to pry you free from the world? What will it take to set you free from the world's idolatries? What will it take to make you free from the world's immoralities? What will it take to liberate you from the world's false perspective on the way things are? I'll tell you what it'll take. It'll take seeing God as he is. Hamilton continues, Beholding God will break the chains of idolatry because when you see God, you see what deity is. And that exposes the false idols as worthless and unworthy of trust. Beholding God will purify you from immorality because when you see God as he is, you see what beauty and faithfulness are. And that exposes the ugliness of adultery. Finally, he says, Beholding God will give you a new lens through which to look at the world because God himself defines reality. It's true. We're a visual culture. We're a pictorial people. And what John has given here in Revelation 4 is a visible sighting of the invisible God. And notice the first thing that John sees. Um, before we encounter any visual description of God himself, something else initially captures John's gaze. It's in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne. 
a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So the first object upon which John rivets his attention is a throne. This throne is referenced more than any other reality in John's vision. Uh, Sixteen separate times over these two chapters alone, we read of the throne. It dominates Revelation 4 and 5. And the point is clear enough. Uh, What's Revelation 4 and 5 wanting us to know about our God more than anything else? Simple. That our God is a great king. Uh, The Psalms alone bear weighty testimony to this reality. Psalm 10, verse 16. The Lord is a king forever and ever. Psalm 22, 28. Kingship belongs to the Lord. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Psalm 44.4, it's a, a personal confession. David says, you are my king, O God. That's telling, because David was the king of Israel. You are my king, O God. God is a great king. Now here, in the opening verses of Revelation 4, we see not only that God is, is a great king, but God is a holy king. John writes in verse 3, He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And notice as John begins to relay his vision to us, he doesn't reach for any imagery that is remotely human in nature. Instead, he tells us of what God is like by describing I think it's the refraction of light through three ancient and exquisite gemstones. Uh, Jasper is typically opaque and uh, difficult see-through, could be found in many different colors. Carnelian is is a flaming red. An emerald, of course, is an intense green. The image is difficult to piece together with precision, but I think the idea is that this rainbow around the throne is a result of the prism-like effect passing through these jewels. The result is is a picture that may seem strange, but the truth to which it points is, is familiar enough, and it's this, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. Or as Paul says in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.16, that God dwells in unapproachable light that no one has ever seen or can see. So John says that God has the appearance of resplendent, dazzling, blazing light. Now we're going to come back around and look at verse 4 in our final point, but if you drop down to verses 5 and 6, we'll continue to read about this throne. We read that, that from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, if we were to unpack each and every one of these images, not only would you be here a long time, um, but you'd see them all pointing in one direction. Holiness. That's what these images are about. Holiness. The word holy means to be separate from or to be utterly unlike others. Um, When John 
gets his first glimpse of God in Revelation chapter 4, his, his only immediate recourse is to reach and to grasp for language that proclaims God's utter uniqueness and separation from his creation. There's just no one like him. Um, yes, we are made in God's image, but we must never, ever think of him existing in ours. To whom, then, will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Isaiah 46, 5. God is, is pure. He is separated from sin. He's undefiled. And there's simply no fitting analogy under heaven for him. You see, each time John says, well, he's, he's like these images. Not exactly. He's like these. It's a strange thing to admit, but if we're going to stand a chance of worshiping God as he is this season, let alone commend him to people um, in our lives that are not in right relationship with him, the first thing that we've got to come to grips with is his incomparability. There's no analogy here. There's no one like God. Um, when someone asks you, what's God's like? What's God like? And, and you respond to them, well, he's, he has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Uh, you know you're talking about someone without any peers. Someone for whom comparison is both silly at best and idolatrous or dangerous at worst. Uh, in an article titled, More Than Meets the Eye, Dr. Richard Swenson writes, the core temperature of the sun is 15 million degrees centigrade. It's so hot that a, a pinhead heated to the temperature of the center of the sun would emit enough heat to kill anyone who ventured within a thousand miles of it. Application? Well, there's hot, and then there's hot. Right? Likewise, there's, there's holy, and then there's holy. The holiness of God is a way of speaking of the otherness of God. And it's this otherness, of course, is what makes the Advent story so mind-boggling. Nothing, I think it was J.I. Packer who said, nothing in fiction is as fantastic as the truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Edith Reed, 100 years ago, a hymn writer, wrote these lines, Infant, holy, infant, lowly, for his bed a cattle stall, oxen lowing, little knowing, Christ the babe is Lord of all. So this Advent season, may God open the eyes of our hearts to see that God is a holy king. Second point today. This Advent season, may God open the eyes of our hearts to see that God is an eternal king. That God is an eternal king. Now follow along with me and we'll pick up our text in the second half of verse 6 and I'll read through verse 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Everything crystal clear? Let's take a look at this. Uh, two aspects, maybe, in these two and a half verses that would be helpful to address. The first would be the identity of these four living creatures. And then, secondly, the content of their song. Um, as to their identity, it would be important to note that this isn't the first time that we see these uh, folks in Holy Scripture, if you can call them that. Uh, their identity is uh, first hinted at, in the, not in the book of Revelation, but in the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, uh, at least 500 years before Christ was born. Um, as the people of God are exiled to Babylon, Ezekiel, much like John as an exile, had a vision of God, and it includes a description of the four living creatures in Ezekiel chapter 1, much like the one we just read. So the image of John's, uh, the four living creatures that John is unfolding wouldn't be unfamiliar to his Jewish readers who were familiar with the prophets like Ezekiel. As you might imagine, there's been a lot of speculation down through the centuries regarding the identity of these four living creatures. Uh, the answer that I find most satisfying is captured by one commentator this way. The four living creatures uh, are representative of the whole of animate creation, detailing what's noblest, the lion, what's strongest, the ox, what's wisest, man, and what's swiftest, the eagle. If that suggestion is right, then these four living creatures signify the excellence of every living, breathing, flesh and blood animate creation in the created order. And though they look like earthly creatures, they are not. These are heavenly beings that have the appearance of earthly creatures. Uh, John says that they surround the throne of God in verse 6 and 8. He tells us that they are full of eyes in front and behind, full of eyes all around and within. It's, it's a first century picture of alertness, of watchfulness, as one author put it, of unceasing vigilance over God's creation. And the fact that they have six wings apiece and they sing the song that they do actually should draw us back to one other Old Testament image from the prophets, the vision of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and the angels that were in his throne room each had six wings and sang a similar song. They were angelic seraphs in that situation, angels. Now, if you or I were to get a glimpse of these four creatures, we would most likely melt away in sheer terror. I'm sure that John is gasping for breath at this point. And yet these four heavenly beings, notice, are themselves transfixed on someone else. They are absolutely captured by the one that's on the throne. And according to verse 8, there is a song that they never cease to sing. A song 
that never stops resonating throughout the throne room of heaven. Now maybe the heavenly iPod is set on shuffle as opposed to repeat because throughout the book of Revelation there's a number of hymns that appear. This is one of them. But evidently this is a favorite one in the heavenlies. It's the lead track in the book of Revelation. It's the first of the hymns in the final book of Scripture. And here's the lyrical content. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. If you were to slowly work your way through that verse, it's got three attributes of God that are clearly defined in the lyrics. God's holiness, God's omnipotence, and God's eternality. Um, we've already looked at his holiness, and we've seen at least some evidence of his omnipotence. Uh, he is a, a potentate, after all. He's an omnipotentate, an all-powerful king. Let's, let's drill down for a minute on that third attribute in the song of the four living creatures, God's eternality. According to verse 18, God is a holy, all-powerful king who was and is, and is to come. Ponder it for a moment. God was, God is, and God is to come. God is an uncreated, unending, perpetual, ceaseless, timeless, endless being. He has no beginning. He will have no ending. He's a forever king. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Job 36, 26 proclaims, behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Here in the book of Revelation, we read in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but one of the first theological questions I ever asked my mother was about the eternality of God. I must have been about five we're on our way to church. It was a long drive, as I recall. And I piped up from the back seat on the way to St. Mark's Episcopal Church. Mommy, when was God born? Seemed like a reasonable question. I'll never forget her answer. It's probably the answer your, your parents gave you on the way to church. Honey, God never was born. He just always was. You want to break a kindergartner's brain? That'll do it. Abstract concepts with concrete minds. We face that at home to some degree, even with our first grader. And even though we can think in the abstract, th there comes a point when we have to surrender to this truth. This still does break our brains if we dwell on it long enough. Think about it. Everything. Everything in the created order has a definite 
beginning. Even the most skeptical, atheistic materialist will confess that all that is within the universe got its start somewhere at some time. Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias writes, Matter cannot simply pop into existence on its own. The silence from atheistic science on why there is something rather than nothing is deafening. In fact, it's the non-eternality of us, of the stuff in this universe, the non-eternity of us that has forced the most logical minds in human history to conclude that there must be an unmoved mover, an uncaused cause of all that is. It's called the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And it's this God, this eternal, timeless God, who when the fullness of time had come, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive our adoption as sons, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. This God is, is other and eternal. God is worthy of our worship, but until we see him as he is, we'll never savor him as he deserves. So this Advent season, may God open the eyes of our hearts to see that God is an eternal king. But one final point today, and we're done. We've been circling it over the last couple of minutes, and it's this. This Advent season... May God open the eyes of our hearts to see that God is a creator king. God is a creator king. In our second point, drawn from verses 6 to 8, we saw the four living creatures and we considered the content of their song. Uh, Likewise, here in our third point, we're going to look at verse 4 and then verses 9 to 11 and see the 24 elders and think a little bit about the content of their song. Let's start with verse 4. I'm going to drop or bring yourself back up to verse 4. John says, And around the throne were 24 elders seated on the thrones. I'm sorry, it was 20, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Who are these folks? Well, it's commonly held throughout church history that these 24 elders represent the gathered people of God from the Old Covenant to the New. It's thought that 12 of them are the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then that 12 of them are the 12 apostles of our Lord, the uh, Old Testament and New Testament people represented together. And that may be possible. Uh, It is certainly not important to be particularly dogmatic on this issue, but I wonder, as I read the book of Revelation, if that's exactly spot on. I I question the traditional interpretation just slightly. Um, It is true that the names of the 12 heads of Israel's tribes and the names of the 12 apostles are uh, written on the gates of the New Jerusalem, according to Revelation 22:13, Revelation 22:14, But there's not a lot throughout the book of Revelation. If you were to read it in one sitting, which I recommend, take about an hour or so, one reading through the book of Revelation, as you kept your eye on these folks, you would see that 
the 24 elders are very different from the saints throughout the book of Revelation. For instance, the 24 elders frequently act as intermediaries between God and the saints. Uh, they know things the saints don't, Revelation 5.5. 5. The 24 elders hold the prayers of the saints in their hands, Revelation 5.8. The 24 elders praise God for the salvation of the saints in a way that it seems like they're on the outside looking in. So these may be the leaders of Israel's 12 tribes and 12 apostles, but they may also be heavenly beings, more on the order of angels than of men. In any case, whatever we say about their identity, as with the four living creatures, it's their song that's of such interest. Now notice, they are stirred by the song of the four living creatures. These 24 regal beings rise from their thrones and fall prostrate on the ground, and then they throw their crowns before the throne of God. In the ancient world, it's been noted by historians that lesser kings would lay their crowns at the foot of greater ones. Uh, first century historian Tacitus tells us that the Parthian king Tiridates laid his crown before the emperor Nero. That's likely what John has in mind here. So verses 9 to 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who was seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Two things in closing that I'd like to point out about this section of Scripture. It's really two words, and they're both found in verse 11. The first word is the word worthy. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Worthy. Now, it's true that the word throne, um, if you're just looking at sheer uh, count, deserves pride of place. It appears more often than the word worthy in Revelation 4 and 5. But I would argue that the word worthy probably is more strategically significant in these chapters. That word, worthy, is used five different times in these two chapters. And in each case, it's the word worthy that serves as the pivot point for John to explain the next step in the gospel presentation. Remember now, the elements of a, of a solid gospel presentation are God, man, Christ, response. Now watch this. Who is worthy? God. Revelation 4.11. Who is unworthy? Man. Revelation 5.2. Revelation 5.4. Who alone is worthy to redeem the created order? Christ, Revelation 5, 9. And what's, what's the response of the redeemed? Worthy is the Lamb, Revelation 5, 12. Worthy. It's a word used relatively frequently throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated deserving, fitting, in keeping with, right, so what's, 
What's right in this case? What's right? Well, that would bring us to the second word that I want to draw our attention to. And it's the word in verse 11, for. Notice this now. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, why is God worthy of worship? Because he made us. And he made us without any help from us. Um, one of my favorite lines in any hymn in Christian hymnody is written by William Keth and is called uh, All People That On Earth Do Dwell. Uh, verse 2 reads this way. It also sings this way. The Lord ye know is God indeed. Without our aid he did us make. Well, I'll leave it without the resolution there to prove the point. Only sinful human beings would need to be reminded of that second line. Without our aid he did us make. He's our creator, so he's worthy of worship. And not merely our creator, of course, but our redeemer. Um, one simple way, as we've talked here, to divide up Revelation 4 and 5 is these four gospel movements. God, man, Christ, response. That's what we'll do this Advent. Another way is much simpler. Uh, chapter 4, creator. Chapter 5, redeemer. The one who created us and is worthy of worship is surely worthy of worship in view of his redemptive work in Jesus Christ. So God is worthy of our worship because God is our creator king. Now let's put it all together. God is worthy of our worship, but until we see him as he is, we'll never savor him as he deserves. So this Advent season, may God open the eyes of our hearts to see the first step of the gospel, to see God, that God is a holy king. God's an eternal king. And God is a creator king. This week, our focus is the throne of God. And we'll, we'll dwell on that in these days, heading up to the second Sunday of Advent. Next week, we'll take a second step into our study of Revelation 4 and 5 with a look at the fall of man. Once we've seen God in his glory, we are properly positioned to see man and his need. The gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus shines all the brighter when we see how dark and desperate our condition is apart from him. And really, I think one of the most dramatic portraits of that in the Bible is Revelation 5, verses 1 to 4. More on that uh, next Sunday. It may sound depressing, but it's been my experience that when it comes to the gospel, um, when it comes to the gospel, most of us underappreciate the good news because we radically understate the bad news. We have a tendency to heal the wound of sin very lightly, and we ought not to. So a robust grasp of the doctrine of sin is absolutely critical to understanding the gospel and then preparing our heart's room for the birth of this baby this Christmas. Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven,